0: for your childhood hero, Gavin Rolf, the postman Larson. Gavin, welcome to the show. Welcome to become your own superhero.
1: <laughs> G'day, Laban.
0: Yeah, Rolf. <laughs> my middle name.
1: Bless, bless my dad and uh, the postman. Yeah, the postman that brings back memories as well.
0: Well, I'm glad. I'm glad it's it's an affectionate name that was. I think must have been given to you by the by the. Your teammates at the time, are you able to explain why they called you the postman?
1: Uh, yeah, no, it wasn't my teammates actually, to be honest. Um, I'll take you back to '96, um, New Zealand tour of the of the West Indies, and um, yeah, gee, the, the memory comes flooding back. I, we were at Sabina Park, Jamaica, um, and we we're in a, um, playing in a um in a test match down there. And I was fielding down at fine leg in front of a part of the ground that they affectionately call the mound, um, which is a big grass sort of section. Um, you field too long down in front of the mound, you, you'll, you'll end up being high, um, (laughs) beautiful aromas that sort of waft off the, off the mound. And, um, I was bowling. Okay. Um, and I'd had a, a reasonable tour, and the, um, the West Indies fans, it sort of, it came a little bit under their wing, actually, to be, to be fair. And it was a bloody great tour, actually, the, the, the one of the Indies. And um, anyway, um, I started hearing him behind me from the mound, hey, real bold, Posty, hey, hey, Posty, sign this. And I said, hey, what, what, what are you on about, Posty? Postman, Postman, you always deliver. <laughs> So, yeah, then a um, couple of my teammates picked up on it as well and then it sort of grew a few arms and legs from there.
0: What a Well, what a great nickname for starters, you know, given the the, the multitude of other ones that have been designated to other players across different <laughs> teams. But you're a, a retired, proud Black Caps player and uh, didn't play a crazy amount of tests versus some of the more modern players uh, players these days, I think based on the sheer volume of tests that are available. And I was trawling through some of your stats and I don't know that you ever had an opportunity to get a run out in a test match. <laughs> is that is that how one do of you, life's how great do you mean re, great, by that great great re, regrets? Or you're always feeling down at fine leg?
1: <laughs> I um, Yeah, I didn't play many tests, Laden, to be fair. Um, I, I blame the selectors of course and isn't it ironic that I now wear a selection hat? <laughs> Um, I reckon I got dropped about um, 15 times by the New Zealand selectors because what would happen is I think I, you know, um, was probably one of the first names down when it came to the the ODI team through that particular sort of um, phase. And um, normally, then the Test matches would get bolted onto the end of the ODI series, and you know, unfortunately, Chris Harris and I would, you know, tend to get a bit of a a little tap on the shoulder at the end of the one-day series, you know, I got some bad news for you. Yeah, yeah. You oh shit. Well, okay. You know, that's um, seven times I've been dropped. Eight times I've been dropped. Um, I mean, look, any cricketer will tell you, Laban, that um, it's the ultimate playing Test match cricket. Um, I played eight Tests. So I can remember them all. Really. Um, I thought my my strike rate was okay. Actually, I, I twenty four wickets in those eight Tests, but I mean, my issue was, you know, the ball coming out at sort of, you know, less than 120k um, wasn't going to strike any fear into batsmen's hearts. And if I was going to make a a test team, it wasn't going to be as a, in the front line three sort of quick bowlers. Um, You'd have to be carrying a fourth seamer or I'd have to play as an all-rounder. So I never really established a role in in test match cricket. and, And hence, you know, I found that niche in the white ball game.
0: Well, I mean, you did, and you did a wonderful, wonderful job for New Zealand in that role, and and um, and I want to explore this being dropped because we had the the absolute delight of having Chris Rogers come round to the house the other day and film. And he, he was dropped after one test and then it took him an awfully long time to get back. And he talks about the mental challenges around just the tenacity to get back, but you've been dropped multiple times. How did you deal with that whole mental starting again kind of process?
1: Yeah, look, I I think I'm probably a little bit, um, tongue in cheek. Um, the reality is, and I'll bring it back to how I was explaining my, my set. um, you know, as much as I, you know, tried and trained to turn myself into what I would consider to be a, a genuine all-rounder, you know, someone who could bat six, uh, maybe seven, and, and then contribute as the fourth seamer, you know, I couldn't quite scale up my skills to, you know, to that to that level. So I actually flick it around in my own mind. I, I actually, you know, thank my lucky stars that I got the um, the positive phone call um, you know for and played eight test matches. Um, so I, I'm probably jesting a, a little bit on if I can link it to ODI cricket though. Um, I got I remember in the World Cup in '99, uh, we were it was in England and we had a must win game on a dirty green seamer up in Scotland, um, in Edinburgh. Um, and we were playing the locals, I was playing the Scotland team, and um, I couldn't believe it the night before I had a knock, knock, knock on the um, hotel door and it was um who was the captain. And he basically just said, look, I've got some bad news for you. You're not playing tomorrow. And I, like, I was gobsmacked. I didn't know how to react. And um, it was the first time that I actually believed that, you know, my whole whiteboard career, that I'd actually been dropped from a, from a team. Um, and um, I asked him for his logic and his rationale as to why I was being dropped and he said, basically, that we needed to win by a certain margin in that game to make sure that we could then qualify for the sixes. Sixers. So we had to comprehensively beat Scotland. Um, and so they decided to go with the more attacking bowlers. You know, my answer to Flem was, well, you, you give me a club deck that's got, you know, <laughs> got a little bit of sideways and, mate, I'll do the job for you. I'll pick up, I'll, I'll pick up man of the match for you and get four for 20. Um, and he said, oh, look, the decision's been made. So I was pretty devastated by that. As it turned out, we won the game the next, the next day. Um, the guy that took my spot at I called Carl Bullfin, Um not an overly familiar name to
0: no. a
1: lot of probably fans around the world, but he didn't play very much for, for NZ. Um, he went for about six and over. only bowled about three or four overs, if my memory's right. And I sneaked straight back into the team from that point on. The bottom line to that story, Laban, was about <laughs> five years later. I remember, you know, knocking into Flem at the bar and having a having a chat with him. I'd retired at that stage. Um, and I said, Mate, I want to take you back to Edinburgh. And he said, Don't even go there. I was wrong.
0: <laughs> that's all you mate, that's all you want. Just an admission of guilt. Yeah. That's it. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Now, you, Gavin, you're heavily involved with the Black Caps now and, and heavily involved with the selection side of things, and I'm going to throw a curly one at you. Taking the stats away from your cricketing career, if you had an opportunity, would you pick Gavin Larson back in the 90s as a player in the Black Caps side for your work? Ooh, good or,
1: question. Um,
0: compared to what's available now.
1: Yeah, instinctively my answer is no, because it, the game's moved on. The game's moved on dramatically since the way we played white ball cricket back in the 90s. Um, you know, back then, in New Zealand conditions in particular, the pitches were a little bit slower. Um, there wasn't a lot of bounce. And so they were absolutely tailor-made for guys like um, myself, Chris Harris, who I've mentioned, the Willie Watsons of this world. Mm-hmm. You know, the guys that just had this ability to run in and, and, you know, stick a hanky down, back of a length, you know, ball hitting top of off and and five balls out of six, you can can achieve that. Um, You know, we had a skill set, you know, bowlers like us. Um, These days, the game's moved on, it's played at, the game's played at greater pace, there's more power, you know, the bats are bigger and fatter, the boundaries are in, and, you know, the way you've got to play the game of cricket now is in a more attacking way. Um, so, you know, wearing a selector's hat now, we when we pick a team, we're picking attacking bowlers um, as opposed to defensive bowlers. Um, but possibly a little bit different in, in T20 cricket in some respects. Um, you know, red dot balls are so, are, are so crucial. Um, deep in my heart, I still think that, you know, there's joyous to me later than to see a guy being able to you know run in and, and hit a length and hit the slice and um, you know keep guys really honest um, but the game has moved on and um, I think to answer your question in, in, in full I would have adapted my game um, to the changing um, game and I would get selected there you go. <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm glad you said that and, and thanks for your honesty Gavin I, one, one thing that I've noticed in the last few years is that I've come to learn that, that the, this natural talent that people have in life is not largely never natural. And sure, you can be born six foot four and have a predisposition to play basketball, right? But I've learned that pretty much everything in life can be these learned talents. And when you realize that that's now possible, it changes the game with everything and your, your ability to adapt just goes through the roof because you then believe that you can do it and I think Charles Darwin said something about it's not the smartest that survive it's the fastest to adapt and so I've been adding that in all areas of my life now and finding that I'm able to progress significantly faster because I always just you know five foot nine just mediocre pace you know playing rugby at Christchurch Boys High and played in the third 15 probably would have played in the second 15 or the first 15, another high school. You know, if you, if we can spread this message to children um, and, and empower them and say, you, you know, you can actually do whatever you want. You just gotta, you gotta love it. And, and I suppose my next question for you, Gavin is when did you realize that you loved the game of cricket? What age do you remember that you loved the game of cricket?
1: Um, oh, mate, I was, <clears throat> look, I was brought up in a, in a, Sporting family, my old man played National League football, um, so he was a round ball, round ball man. Um, so I love my footy. Um, played a lot of rep football actually, and, and and if I'm brutally honest, probably the, probably football or soccer it was as it was known back then was it was probably my my real passion. I love my cricket, don't get me wrong, um, and I played. Um, for the local club down in, in Johnsonville in Wellington, Johnsonville Cricket Club. and um, I mean, I did everything the young, young, young fellas did. I had a great little group of mates, you know, Mike and Mark, I remember really well. We used to spend hour after hour up in the Johnsonville Cricket Nets in summer, and then we would be kicking a ball around on the bottom field at Alex Moore Park um, when winter rolled round. You know, we played footy and cricket together, and, um, and then it was just interesting, you know. You know the way, I guess, the um, the path moves. You know, over the, over the years through your teenage years, you know, cricket started to um, become a greater part of my life. I used to go and watch my old man play a lot. who played senior cricket for for, for Johnsonville. Um, I started to score. Take my little score book along, and you know, I used to score with my HB pencil and uh, a <laughs> square when a, a wide's bold. And I just found that the, the, the passion grew. So it was a little bit like what you were referring to before. I was sort of sort of a bit learned, I guess. Um, the football was very natural and, and intuitive. But I reached that crossroads um, through the back end of my sort of teenage years, back end of college years, um, where... It got a little bit more difficult because I was playing. I was in the rep pathway in Wellington in both sports, and I had an opportunity to start thinking about going to England for the first time uh, to play cricket. And um, I took that, and that was the fork in the in the road. And I I took that path, and um, yeah, never never looked back. But I must admit, you know, coming back and get putting the footy boots on every now and then was still um, still seemed to shiver up the spine as well.
0: Well, you, and the country's grateful that you made that decision. I mean, do you think that given the experience you've got in your role as a senior uh, selector, if you were plonked to the New Zealand football side, could you select uh, a, a champion side without having that depth of experience in the, in the soccer? Uh, do a good job?
1: Tricky, tricky question that. I, you know, I don't know the football scene you know, too intimately, too deeply. You know, what I know is that it's travelling in the right direction here in New Zealand, you know, the advent of the Phoenix, and um, things are getting a lot slicker with these third-party academies, and there's a, you know, a conveyor belt now of young talent that's coming through, heading off to, you know, the likes of America with their football scholarships into Europe. Um, uh, It's just very disappointing, being a football fan as well, that, you know, we don't see our all-whites playing um, you know, a consistent amount of vo- a volume of international football um, because you can only get better by playing on the big stage. And I guess if I bring it back to cricket, you know, that's where we're very, very lucky. We've, um, we are now, I think unashamedly, we can say we're one of the, you know, the leading countries in, in, in cricket in the world. We're too right. Yeah. And I think we should fist bump. It's, um, you know, we've done a lot of things, a lot of things right over the last decade or so, and we've got our systems and processes in place. Um, <laughs> um, you know, really, really well. Um, there's not too many loose ends now. Um, there's always hot spots, of course. There is there is in anything in life, um, but we're doing things pretty well, Laban. And um, you know, I can go back probably, you know, ten to fifteen years where the advent of the Cricket Players Association, Um, the, um, you know, kicking into that true professional sort of way of playing the game, you know, a change in governance at New Zealand cricket level, Um, and I'm a firm believer in everything starts at the top, you know, know, a really strong board, good management um, at New Zealand cricket level, filtering down to our major associations, um, you know, good, be much better coaching structures, um, and the bricks and mortar. Um, you know, the facilities. You know, that twenty-two yards of, of 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 grassy strip that, to me, means so much and is so pivotal as to you know how we're going to bring our young cricketers through. And that's I'm talking about out in the middle, but I'm probably just as importantly talking about the the training facilities that we're yeah. offering. Our younger cricketers—it's all there now. Everything's there. Um, you know, we've still got a lot of work to do. Don't get me wrong, but I think if you now look at the ICC rankings um, and you see where the Black Caps are positioned, then um, I think we can be—you know—we we, we can be pretty happy with the progress we've made.
0: I, I think New Zealand cricket, from a fan point of view, uh, from my my side, has been just—I'm so proud to to be a Black Cap supporter and. And to see the the trajectory go up over the last few years, and I, uh, you know, going through the highs and the lows of the, you know, the, the, the most recent World Cup, and how New Zealand cricket is observed from a fan point of view outside of New Zealand, we are, you know, near and endeared to to pretty much every country in, in the planet. We've been able to get to that level without compromising a lot of values, and I, um, you know, I get sort of shivers down my spine thinking about it. One of the things that just popped into my head, Gavin, would be Jesse Ryder. That's is—is is he one of? And I, and I have, have a lot of respect for Jesse. And having gone through my own troubles with with addiction, um, you know, I really empathise with what he's gone through. Do you see Jesse Ryder as someone that, had he been able to get himself right, would have been uh, an extraordinary contributor to New Zealand cricket?
1: Oh, mate, he would have been an um, extraordinary contributor to global cricket. When I first saw Jesse hitting balls, um, I had a stint as CEO at, at Cricket Wellington. Um, oh, actually, I'll come back to that. Prior to that, I had been in the um, training facility down at um, the stadium in Wellington, and Jesse was hitting some balls in there. And, mate, I'll be brutally honest, I've, I've never seen anybody other than Ross Taylor hit the ball so cleanly with so much power, Um and he just had this innate ability to <laughs> – the ball was just hitting the middle of his bat. Um, and I said at that point, and I was actually almost on record at, um, at Cricket Wellington, I saying, this guy will kick on, he'll get 5,000 <clears throat> um, test runs. He'll get 5,000-plus ODI runs. And T20 cricket was only uh, – you know, in fact, it was only just being given birth to. You know, God knows what he would have achieved in T20 cricket. So – Look, it's a, it's a sad story. Um, it's a tragic story that um, we've had someone of Jesse's ability slip through the net. Um, but it's also, there's also a lot of lessons, um, you know, for not only cricket, but I think in sport in general as to, you know, how we help and assist and manage guys who have got yeah um, and troubles. And Jesse had troubles, there's no doubt about that. Um And to help them, you know, through those tough periods. Because, you know, we should be sitting here now still watching Jesse in his absolute pomp, um, destroying attacks, um, you know, around the world. And it's not to be and it won't to be now. uh, won't be now. Um, You know, nature's taken its course. um, There's lessons there too.
0: It's... uh it, look, there is some wonderful lessons that will come out of this, Gavin, and, I, and I'm curious to know what's in place now for players, from from grassroots up, to help mitigate this and cut this off before it becomes, you know, lost.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, one of the one of the greatest um, moves, I guess, or, or the progress that we've made in New Zealand cricket, and I mentioned the Cricket Players Association, the CPA, before they've done a very, very good job um, and their their role is a simple one. It's, it's you know, they um, they are the the, the player's organisation. They represent the player's interests. They do whatever they feel they need to do to protect the player's interests. Um, and it's been a little different to, you know, you glimpse across the Tasman and, and you see, you know, some of the angst and the tension and the conflict that exists between the, the, the players and the administrators yeah. in Australia. We haven't actually had that issue yet. Don't don't get me wrong, there's there's always little hot spots and um there are very robust conversations and when it comes to resetting the master agreement, you know, the the deal between the uh, the professional deal between the CPA and New Zealand cricket and the six major associations, there's always going to be some blood on the ceiling. Um uh but it all happens within it within four walls and once Everything does get signed off, we're all swimming in the same direction. Now, you know, part and parcel of that MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding, uh, that does get signed um, every four or five years, um, is around player development and player welfare and and what processes get put in place, you know, to assist players and in the areas that we've just been talking about. And I've seen that area grow substantially. And to bring it into the current situation that we're you know, battling with around the world with COVID. Um, you know, it was very interesting to me to see that um, the activity from the Players Association actually went up a notch through through this period. You know, their engagement with the players was, um, it was all consuming and they were out there. They were, you know, looking after their, their constituent members. You know, they were caring for them. They were putting in place what they, what they needed to and it's going to, it's going to remain tough, um, but I think we've got between New Zealand cricket and the Players Association, we've got some good building blocks in place now to, to look after our players and to help shape them. And in particular, Laban, I think one of the key focuses has to be what is life after cricket going to look like and how am I going to position myself um, to you know, um, drive or leverage off what I achieve in cricket um, but importantly what happens if my knee blows out after yes. two years of class cricket and I'm actually out into the big wide world because you've got to make sure you start positioning yourself early on
0: yeah and it's it's uh, it's world leading stuff Gavin and I, it's you know the, the rest of the other playing cricket playing countries should should take notice and I think some do it better than others being involved in uh, at a premier level over here so you do get some exposure to state and some international, uh, players the you know they have had their challenges it's still run incredibly well uh, from what I can tell but I what I was going to say is that one of the things that I'm very passionate about Gavin as, as a speaker and, and as, as a coach uh, in terms of like an accountability coach not a sporting coach is that when I was able to understand that a lot of the things that I experienced in my youth which was simply like a child of divorce and and parents that did the best they could, but were also the product of divorce and and dysfunction is that when I, when I was able to understand that all of these things that happened to me are actually now gifts rather than burdens that, that desire to want to escape and to do drugs and to drink and to, you know, just be out of the, out of my head, dissipate, dissipated immediately. And I, and I, and I feel like that, someone like just going back to Jesse, for example, you know, there there must be a litany of people that have experienced trauma or dysfunction in some way, shape or form, and they just do what they know best to try and cope with it. And clearly, you know, booze was his, one of his demons. So is there much focus on that side of the player management as well, or am I starting to get real deep on you?
1: Oh, look, I mean, it's, it's, but it's um, it's part and parcel of what we deal with um, in in professional sport. Um, so, I mean, mental health. Um, you know, there's a, cricket is an unforgiving sport. Um, I mean, it's a shocker. You know, <laughs> first ball as an opener, you sit around all day, and all you're doing is reliving that one ball that was bowled. It, it might have been a jaffer, and you could do nothing about it, or you might have actually, you know bit hard at it and, and you just and you're sitting there pulling the year out for the rest of the day um, and then you don't get a bat in the second innings um, because you're won by an innings and, and this game's rained out and then you get caught on a dodgy pitch and you or an umpire fires you out um, it, it's it's a demanding game and and I guess as a selector you know one of my my key I guess philosophies is um, is around communication and, and, you know, the nature of communication and the empathy that I believe is needed when you're, you know, talking to players, um, you know, both when you're delivering positive messages and, a negative, <laughs> you, know, a, you know, a dear John phone call. I mean, that are terrible phone calls that you have to make. But, you know, I do believe if you make them the right way, then um, hopefully, you know, sometimes it's white noise and you need to have a backup call. Um, But, you know, you need to leave a player understanding the logic around, you know, why they haven't made a team. But what I know, having been dropped 15 times in my life, (laughs) um, is that it it messes with your head um, and it's tough. So to look back to your question, you know, yes, there are um, mechanisms, there are processes in place now. um, But one of my messages to any sportsman is... um, you know, whilst there might be support structures that are in place, you know, you don't you don't want it to be the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff sort of mm. thing. It's very, very important that if, if as a sportsman you're feeling under pressure, if you just things aren't feeling normal, if there are peripheral distractions that are being brought to the table, we've talked about the likes of alcohol and the jessies, um, reach out, talk, communicate. You know, people you trust. You know, don't be don't be shy about um, opening up to people because we're we're human beings. We're born to communicate. Um, you know, please don't bottle things up. There you go. That's probably a bit heavy as well,
0: but right, it's great. It's great. It's, it's great coming from someone of such authority in the game because the stigma around just getting the shit off your chest, like it's actually really cathartic. And and when you become comfortable like I have over the last few years, I am like unashamed (laughs) with sharing all of my demons because it's, it's allowed me to really grow. And, and, and I then own everything that's happened to me and, and it's allowed me to move forward. And and then, then no one can hold anything against you because you've, you've, you've shared it with them. Right. And anyone that's going to hold it against you is not someone you want in your life. but, that's right. With with regards to your role in the Black Caps in this selection, you're making the phone calls to select and, and drop blokes at times? Uh,
1: we, we we share that. Uh, so we, we, we just have the two formal selectors and Gary Stead, who's the head coach and head selector. I'm the selection manager. So I look after um, all selection, um, I guess, ad, administration, organisation, um, dealing uh, stakeholder communication with the uh, major associations um, and scheduling um, around the around the season so that's my job um, we have um, some very very good key scouts around the country that we bring to the table and into the selection process but at the end of the day gary and I are the two formal uh, formal selectors on tour it's a little bit it's a little bit different where I don't tour with the black caps um, more often than not. And so Gary will um, work uh, more closely with the likes of Kane as the skipper and potentially one or or, or, or more of the senior leaders um, within, within the unit when it comes to on-tour um, selection. Uh, but what we do is I'll always let Gary um, make the decision as to whether he wants to um, and talk to a particular player about either being selected or dropped. So, you know, I make it very clear I'm not, um, you know, I'm not ducking away from my from from the responsibilities of giving a hard message. You know, you've got to be willing to to do that. But there are certain times where the coach um, will feel that he he sort of feels, I guess, more obliged to make that call than than maybe you know someone like
0: myself. What do you think is more challenging, Gavin? Dropping a black cap, who's played let's say ten tests, or dropping a fourth grade, sixteen year old, who played three games.
1: It's all tough. Um, it, it's not. It's not an easy. Uh, it's not an easy task. Telling anybody that they haven't haven't made a team, um, and look, we've just been through our central contracting. Um, process, you know, where we have sort of our top twenty cricketers who 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 are always thrilled when they get told that they are centrally contracted. That's that's payday. Um, and in New Zealand, uh, Laban, there's a um, there there is a gap that I believe's um, too too big between the bottom of the central contracts and the top of the major association uh, contracts. Um, so when you remove someone from the central contract list. And, and drop them back down to MA cricket, even though they're not a, you know, potentially a, um, a stand-up, you know, first 11 black cap starter, a Taylor, a Williamson, a Southie, a Bolt-type type player. Um, it, it's still a very hard message to, to, to give. And similarly, when I deal with the major associations, you know, they're just they're going through their contracting process at the moment. You know, they're talking about, you know, do they contract 17-, 18-, 19-year-olds at the bottom of their, their, their food chain? And um, I know that they have the same, um, the same issues um, in, in terms of the toughness of those, um, that communication that's got to be made to those players. And so we try to be as aligned as we can be, you know, being empathetic, making sure that all the right people have the, have, have the consistent messages so the players aren't thinking, oh, on one hand, I've been told this by Gav, and on oh, this other hand, Steady said something, and that doesn't quite line up with yeah. what. And then I've got my MA coach coming from a slightly different perspective as well. So we try to join the dots up as much as we can from a comms point of view before the actual one-on-one message is made.
0: That's really good, Gavin. I appreciate you going into that much sort of detail because it's really helpful, and I was sort of more referring to the uh, – as captain of the fourth grade at Melbourne University Cricket Club <laughs> and the average yeah. age being about 19. They're all young, to be my <laughs> son, and still the hormones are flowing. and like. <laughs> but I was, I'd like to ask you to share your favourite cricketing memory with us, if you could.
1: Oh, wow. Goodness me. Where do and, you start?
0: And be <clears throat> please be shameless as, as you like. This is the time. Drop the ego. Pump it up.
1: Yeah, look it's probably gonna be an event rather than something something personal. Um, I mean there's lots of lots of moments and lots of games where I think I've contributed well and we've won games of cricket maybe um, because of my performance or my performance has assisted to have a win and there's nothing better, Laban, than you know, winning a game of cricket for your country. Um Pakistan. Pakistan up on the table in the middle of the changing room after a win, only after a win, and the team pledge will get, you know, told by everybody around the table with a bear in hand, and, you know, they are fantastic. Um, The the moments for me probably are centred around World Cups because they, for me, being an ODI sort of specialist in a way, that, that was that was always my, my pinnacle to play in World Cup. So I played 92 here in New Zealand um, in Australia, 96 on the subcontinent, and 99 in England, which I've mentioned before. All three of those events, they, they, they were fantastic. But the one that's just and, – and, and obviously now as a selector last year, what happened in England, um, the tragedy, you know, <laughs> of, of what happened. <laughs> I mean, we're all going to take it to our grave. You want to call it the most enjoyable, memorable, um, you know, cricketing moment? But boy, you know, in terms of something being seared into your into your memory, nothing is ever going to to beat that. We were stiffed big time, um, and as a team, as a squad, as a management group, as an organisation, boy, we got ourselves well. I think there might be a couple of countries around the world that wouldn't have handled themselves quite as well to be to be brutally honest. Hundred percent, yeah. It was a fantastic e- experience, um, and one that will never ever be forgiven. But but for me, '92, um, the World Cup when you know I was playing some pretty good cricket. We were incredibly well led by Marty Crow. You know we no one gave us a chance before that tournament even though we were playing at home we'd come off the back of a <coughs> absolute rubbish <coughs> excuse me, absolute rubbish um, ODI series against England where we'd been toweled. Um it, it, you know things were in disarray, there was um, a bit of captaincy issue with Marty and the, and the New Zealand cricket board and you know, we were, in a way, we were sort of in disarray, but we hit the ground running at Eden Park against Aussie. Um, and we just found this momentum, and, and, it, and it actually carried us right through. Uh, and we found a blueprint. Marty was superb as, as, as um, captain. You know, he moved us around the chessboard, uh, you know, in his, in, his, in his own Marty Crow way. Um, best tactical captain I ever played, but just, and a magnificent player. Stating the obvious, um, a, a, and we, we gained this sort of momentum through that tournament that saw us playing the semi-final at Eden Park, and, and that probably is the moment. And even though we lost that game, um, that's a memory that you know still I can I can I can still feel it. I can hear the crowd. I can feel the tears running down my cheeks um, after the game as we did a lap because. I tell you what, mate, we, we could have and probably should have won that World Cup. We had the team, we were performing, we had the confidence, which is crucial, and we had the momentum, and Inzaman got us on the day, the bugger.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was on a scout camp in the, in the hills of Canterbury, listening to it on a wireless radio, and I remember crying. It's like you, it's it's etched in my. I can't hardly remember anything from my childhood, but I remember that Scouts' honour. Mate,
1: right, it
0: was yeah. Look, it was it was an it was an awesome
1: tournament, um, and I look I look back now, and um, you know I think to myself, how lucky how lucky was I to have been able to have experienced something like that, you know, to be walking through airports in New Zealand with. You know, people coming up to you and clapping, and mate. Even the politicians were in the changing room. You know, things are going well when when they knock on the door and want to yeah. come and have a, have a have a beer with you. Um, so it was it was it was tremendous. '96 had its good, good good moments. We lost the quarterfinal in Madras against a, a very good Australian team. We got done by Mark Waugh, who played, I thought, one of the great one day knocks in that quarter final. Um, and in 99 you know jeff Allett and, and and co jeff Allett with his you know sock hanging out of his uh, out of his with a hole in the front of the boot had a great tournament and you know, we made a semi-final again against our old foe the the pakistanis and, and, and probably you know that was the one team i thought we probably didn't you know quite have the team to go on and maybe win a world cup but you know, what we have done over the years in ICC events, as we've certainly proved, haven't we, New Zealand, that, you know, we can, we can foot it in those tournaments.
0: Oh, never a prouder moment watching the Black Caps these days, Gavin. It's uh, it's a real <laughs> thrill. And you're directly, you know, involved with that. So we thank you for your service. Gavin, I'm, I'm very conscious of your very busy schedule. You've got a lot going on in your life. I wonder if we might be able to finish up with sharing your your suggestions to not just cricketers, but anyone that's involved in trying to progress in their life. What are the key attributes that you look for in picking the best squad possible that don't relate to cricket?
1: Yeah, look, and I don't want this to sound cliche, but the first thing when you ask that is, is good people. So schools are one thing, but, um, we 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 um, unashamedly look in at the at the all blacks environment because we believe and have believed for over a decade now that you know they are a best practice sporting organization that extols everything in terms of excellence. Um, so why wouldn't you look in, in, into an environment like that and, and, and pick off the bits that you think you know you can apply to your organization? And I know that Mike Hisson when he was coach and when I first started the selecting job about five or six years ago, um, he unashamedly, um, you know, said he works closely with, with the AB hierarchy. And and we've all heard about the no dickheads sort of, you know, policy. Um, better people make better sportsmen. Um, it makes things more enjoyable in a general, more holistic sense. And, you know, I am a massive... Firm believer in that So when it when it actually does come to shaping Teams and squads We do We look at the person And we um, uh, Try to understand the person And what makes them tick What their strengths and weaknesses are Naturally of course we're looking at their ability to You know Play a full defensive shot Or shape an outswinger Or you know Do you offer us all round skills So you can bat at six and Bowl as a fourth seamer. Do we? You know, will you be a second spinner for us? Of course. Um, and the stats. You roll the stats into all that, but do not ignore the the, the personal um, that personal sort of attribute side as well. Um, very, very, very important piece of the puzzle for us, um, and that all feeds up into an overarching philosophy that we have in the Black Caps that we call Team First. Um, so Team First principles. You know, we want our cricketers to um, live and die by that by that principle, you know the days of you know blocking that last ball and pushing it out to cover and um, You know it's a dot ball and you end up with 42 not out. They're gone You know that last ball needs to get hit over cover for, for six because that might be the six runs that win you win you the game So I think I think you'll get a sense of what I mean um, by that. So being selfless um, putting team before self very, very important. And, and the only other thing, mate, I'd mention is, and, and you sort of alluded to this early on when we were talking about, I used to be a batsman when I was growing up, and I just bowled these awful little sort of medium cases. <laughs> uh, I, went, I went to England for my first club cricket instant, and, um, it, and and I'd, I'd fibbed. I was a junior all-rounder, I told them. So, of course, I got through on the ball and I was opening the bowling into the wind and. my first <laughs> I thought, should I better actually work on my bowling here a little bit? What I found was actually inside this boring little medium pacer from Monslow Cricket Club um, body that I actually did have a skill to be able to um, put the ball in the right areas more often than not. And the way things actually panned out um, was my, my bowling improved. My batting did fall away a bit. I didn't want it to fall away, but it's just the way it is. Life is like that, you know, you need to be flexible, you need to make mistakes, everyone makes mistakes, you've got to learn from those mistakes and kick on and those two years I had playing in the um, in that Yorkshire league were absolutely pivotal in defining, you know, where I was going to go in my cricket and boy, I did make a lot of mistakes but the one thing I'd say is I think I learned from the majority of them and then managed to put sort of plans in place and... You know, mate, I kicked on and played for Wellington and then I was very, very lucky and played for my country as well. But I look back on that little period in league cricket in England with, um, yeah, a little bit of pride, actually.
0: Well, Gavin Larson, you are the epitome, in my opinion, of someone who has become their own superhero. It's been an absolute thrill, delight and just pleasure to have you on the show today. We thank you so much for your time. Gavin Larson, everybody. Uh, Thanks for having me, mate. Great, Great having a chat. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world... I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.